This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. I'm sure it's your homepage. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. But today, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, seriously, people, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. You know, Bill, one of the things that I love about working with you, working on this podcast, is the refrain of change the world. I've probably heard you say that, I don't know, a hundred times, a thousand times. Every time I hear it, it's inspiring because it reminds me that, you know, you wake up each day and you can decide what do you want to do today? Uh, how do you want to make the world a better place? And if we all motivate ourselves to do that, it happens. The world becomes a better place. And so I'm I'm thrilled. I'm inspired to have on our show right now somebody who's right at the heart of addressing one of the most pressing issues in the world today, one of the most pressing things that we need to change and make better. Speaking of change, climate change is what I'm That's talking about. That's exactly right, my friend. That is exactly right. Everybody check this out. Our guest today is Gina McCarthy. She was the head of the Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama and until recently was in charge of the National Resources Defense Council. But now she is America's first national climate advisor. Gina McCarthy, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Gina? You may. May I call you Bill? Please, please. Excellent. You're an anthropologist. Is that right? That is actually true. Yes. That was my first love. I got a degree in social anthropology. I find people fascinating. What's the difference between anthropology and social anthropology? Well, it's, I was interested in the cultural part. What makes people tick? 
well, you know, how they adapt to where they live and, and what makes people think differently about things. And there's a richness about that that really appealed to me. And it made me understand. And I think better at, at working in bureaucracies because it unbounds you. It makes you think about whole human beings and really relish differences of opinions and, and ways of looking at life. And it's one of the most fascinating things. It's part of what you realize is so difficult about people is everybody loves change because they want to be better, but people also are terrified of change because they might get worse. <laughs> it's the complexity of human beings that makes it really fun, I think. There's a slight twinge in the way you speak, which makes me think that maybe you spent some time in Massachusetts. In fact, I'm pretty sure that you did, in fact, spend a lot of time uh, kind of working in the Massachusetts government. What was that experience like, and how did that prepare you for the bigger things that you're doing now? Well, uh, if I say the word carbon, does that really totally give it away to everybody? Yeah, because it's it spells C-A-H-B-O-N in case anyone wants to look it up. Yeah, I worked in Massachusetts for about 20 years before I uh, actually moved to Connecticut. And then, I, and then I went to EPA. And, and honestly, it gave me a great foundation because I worked at the local level. And then I worked at the state level in Massachusetts. I ended up working between Massachusetts and Connecticut for six governors. Five of them were Republicans. Now, arguably, Republicans in New England are a different animal than, than elsewhere. But it gave me a, a, a wonderful opportunity to figure out how I could really make connections with people about the pollution we were trying to address, including carbon pollution, so that we could sort of get some shared values, shared interests, ways of making progress. And, and I find I just found it fascinating, particularly the local level work, because everything's personal at the local level. Absolutely everything. So along this line, what is your average day? When you say working with people, the people of different opinions, of what, what happens uh, when you go to work? Well, right now I, I work in the White House, which is sounds very glamorous. And in fact, it is important, glamorous not, but important. My job is really to advise the president and to run an office that's looking at bringing a whole of government approach to climate change. It's about making people aware of climate change and the value of the opportunity we have right now to actually make a shift to clean energy and what it means for them in their lives. And importantly, how it's going to be a foundation for economic stability and growth as we work our way out of this COVID-19 pandemic. The first thing I do is get up early. Um, I go into the office and we have a morning call that has the president's chief of staff talking to all of the senior advisors in the White House. We talk about what's going on that day. And then after that, I get, I feel like I get do what everybody else does. Zoom call after Zoom call after Zoom call. But it's, you know, it's my job to really find out what's going on in the agencies and to use every bit of ingenuity and creativity to start investing in that better future. So how many White House advisors are there? There's not that many. Um, you'd be surprised. The White House looks like a big building, but it's pretty small. So in the morning meeting, it's maybe about uh, 15 to 20. You made reference to everybody's favorite thing, carbon. As climate advisor, 
Are you treating carbon as a pollutant? Yeah. We started, you know, when I was at EPA, we started talking about um, carbon as a pollutant. So people would understand that, that, that it has consequences. And obviously, we have to get people to understand what climate change is. And I think I've tried really hard uh, for the past 20 years to not talk about it as a planetary problem, but to try to make sure that people understand its consequences. You do the same thing with pollutants. I don't talk about chemical characteristics. I talk about what it means for them in their lives. And so if you use the word pollutant, people begin to understand, but it doesn't characterize it as completely as it needs to be understood. So I think it's really important to talk about carbon in the context of how we need it for life, but how too much of it can be challenging, and what are the ways in which managing this better can bring them benefits today, not just benefits to the planet in the future. And so everything I did at EPA was trying to make these things relevant and real to human beings and get people excited about the future instead of afraid of it. Because people don't do well when they're afraid. They kind of stick their head in the sand or deny. And we've seen an awful lot of both of those things for too long. Right. I, and I, th- I think we're, we're all 100% on board with this idea of putting out a positive message. The question is always, how do you do it? How do you get it across? How do you convince people that, you know, when you say we're listening to the science, when you say we're addressing uh, this problem of climate change, you're not asking them to rip their lives apart. You're not asking them to suffer. You're actually offering a positive path. How do you do that? Well, Corey, you you hit the right word, I think, um, when you said suffer. Uh, you know, I think that it, it, during this COVID-19 pandemic, I think people really began to understand that their world can really collapse in a moment's notice. Their entire life was changed. We've seen millions of people now out of jobs, not to mention the half a million people that have lost their lives just in the United States. So we're at a moment where people aren't looking for us to ask them to sacrifice. If I understand it, your responsibility as climate advisor is domestic or the U.S. That's correct. So how do you work with uh, John Kerry? Yeah. As he's now a climate envoy. Is his uh, role to the greater world and yours to the U.S.? Yeah, well, well, first of all, the reason why we work so well together is he has the same speech impediment that I do, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> e- even worse at times. Uh, we're both from, from Massachusetts. Here's how it works, is that domestically, I'm looking at advising the president and working with every agency to identify the ways that we can meaningfully reduce carbon emissions, but do it in a way that, that recognizes that we need to grow jobs right now. We need to stabilize the economy. We need to address the communities that have been left behind, like environmental justice communities. And we need really good paying union jobs in jobs that people recognize will rebuild the future and give them a place in the middle class again, like electricians and plumbers and carpenters. And if you do both standards and investments, you can make tremendous progress getting us out of this doldrum. So John Kerry is looking for us and me 
to work across the whole of government to actually look at how we meet our Paris commitment. We have actually rejoined Paris. We're in, yippee, there should be some balloons around. We're back in the international world, but to be taken seriously, we need to go to Glasgow in November at the next conference of the parties where every all the leadership in the international community comes together to talk about climate and how we address it together. We have to deliver what's called the Nationally Determined Contribution, or an NDC. And that means, what can we reduce by 2030? So let me ask you about that then. Yeah. How long is such a document, the National yeah. Commitment document? Is it five pages? Is it 500 pages? And how much detail does it get into? It's very different depending upon every country and what the, how they want to uh, articulate it. Our nationally determined contribution for, you know, 2020 um, was, uh, I think, a paragraph and a half. 2025 was maybe three pages, maybe a little bit more. This is going to be pretty robust because I think, Bill, we all have to realize that over the past four years, you know, denying climate change exists and pulling out of Paris and trying to revive coal as a strategy in the United States did not enamor us and build hope in the international community. So we really have to step up. And we really have to show that there's numbers, there's analytics underpinning uh, numbers. And part of that is going to be really the, the foundation for that, I should say, is going to be President Biden's Build Back Better plan. It's going to provide a, a real framing uh, for how we're going to meet a strong nationally determined contribution. The Green New Deal, the big thing that seems to bug people about it yeah. is this perception that when you give something to somebody, you're taking something from somebody else. To me, the Green New Deal expressed some values that are very human and very American, you know, and I think... You know, I think what happened was everybody added up these little price tags, price tags, price tags, and never looked at this as a, as a value statement that we all ought to work together and leave no one behind. And that's a very American fairness argument. Life is not a zero-sum game. I do not think that just because you benefit that I lose. That's right. not the way that things are. And I think we have to defeat that idea that we're, we have limited capability as a country to actually live well and recognize that if we work together, everybody ought to be elevated. Just because we, we might have shifts in, in who, what kind of energy sector you work in does not mean that we need to leave behind thousands of human beings with no job. It means we have to be creative. Is there a lesson to be learned from Texas? Well, there's a bunch of, of lessons. The first lesson is that, that life ain't what it used to be. <laughs> you know, the climate is changing. You are going to see these types of weather events challenge us. And so we do have to build back with a sense of resilience. How are we going to address these issues? So you have to look at recognizing that no state can be an island 
we have to connect to other states, even physically, to make sure that our capacity to have reliable energy just not, doesn't just rely on our ability at that moment in time to deliver it. We have the ability to work as a country to connect with one another and bring the resilience we need to address these exacerbated weather events. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of lessons learned, but we know that technology has a place in this. We know there's ways of weatherizing windmills. For crying out loud, we've got, I call them windmills. That's the, the colloquial term. Yeah, wind, we'll turbine, call them wind turbines. Yeah, and- turb- yeah turbines might. That, that just shows my age. I mean, we uh, the, the wind turbines in Quebec operate just fine, and that frequently goes to 10 degrees below. It's because they weatherize them, and the same with refineries. So this work that we need to do, not just in Texas, and I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be at a time when they need support to be criticizing. That's not the point. The point is that none of us should be thinking that life is a zero-sum game or getting out of climate change needs to be a sacrifice. And in fact, it's just the opposite. We cannot see this kind of sacrifice of human beings and lives and, and, and people's sense of security and safety here or internationally and give that up because we don't have the will to make change that's better for us, that's cheaper, that will make us healthy today. I mean, there's so much to do. Stick around for more Science Rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Science Rules is back. I want to drill down on this idea of a build back better. It's a powerful idea to latch on to, but what does it mean in practical terms? Is it investment in wind turbines and solar? Is it rebuilding the grid? What does it look like and what is it going to mean for average people? Yeah, it is. It is uh, probably all of the above. I mean, I'm not going to eliminate any potential that we have to actually address climate change. But the whole idea of the Biden plan is to make sure that as we're making choices with these wealth of solutions, that we do it in a way that maximizes job growth 
And it's also making sure that that the communities that haven't been invested in with clean energy investments and others become your priority. He's committed to actually 40% of our clean energy investments going to environmental justice communities. Basically, President Biden has said by 2035, I want to see clean power which means we have to work with all the utilities. So part of my day is spent in bringing utilities together and talking about what you can do, how that benefits you, and how we have to electrify the building sector and how that can actually improve our ability to do this utility and power sector work that we need to do because it's lots of opportunities there. I'm bringing together all of the CEOs like yesterday at every CEO of every car company that sells in the United States. And I said to them, okay, what are you making? How are you making it? How do we bring supply back into the U.S.? How do we use the Build Back Better plan to grow our manufacturing base and not seed all of those new cars and cool things to other countries? Make them here, deliver the jobs here, and recognize, and everybody does, electric vehicles are the big win. Well, what do you think of General Motors' unilateral decision? Okay, we're only going to make electric cars. Well, I think a, a goal of making sure we get to zero and, and all electric by 2035 is terrific. They've really advanced the models that they're delivering that are zero emission vehicles because not everybody's going to want to have a small car. You're going to have other models, even trucks that are electric. That excites me because we have to get consumers to demand these products. We can't just make them cheaper and cheaper. Demand them, demand them. After you drive an electric car, you'll never go back. Do you drive an electric vehicle? I do. I do. I do. I, I, well, I won't tell you which one because that would sound like advertising. Yeah, but it's well, not a much I drive different... a Chevy Bolt, everybody, and I love it. Made in the United States, it's, doggone it's it. It's terrific. And really, if people understood that these things are you know, you know, not engines, they're motors— in the minute you step on it, you don't wait for the oh, God, gas so to fire fun. up. And oh, just, I can't even oh, tell man, you. You'll never so go good. back, everybody. So, you know, you talked about standards. Is there pushback against establishing standards in transportation? Yeah, that's the key issue is, is, to, is to figure out what the system can tolerate and to use investments to, to support that broader system. So, so we are actually going to push the car companies to the limit of what we think is, is comfortable and what we think we need to do to get this on a trajectory to win. President Biden said by 2050, we have to be net zero. If we're not net zero by 2050, we don't win. And obviously, the sooner you get reductions, the better off you are. So we're going to be pushing them. We're going to be creating standards like we always do at EPA is going to create standards for, for greenhouse gas reductions um, emission reductions in, in the auto sector and DOT, they're going to do the fuel economy and we're going to see what the future looks like for these vehicles. And we're not going to be timid about making real demands and acknowledging that zero emission vehicles are going to be a big part of the fleet from this point forward, but also that you can't, that doesn't mean you leave everything else as it is. There's a lot of opportunity right away to get much cleaner cleaner vehicles in every make and model, and we're going to go for it. When you work across agencies, mm -hmm. do you work on this, on what I'm going to call cyber threats? Because I could easily imagine a modern car being hacked 
Or a smart grid. I mean, that's another yep. big question yep. that people have asked about. You actually have to consider those things. And it is an increasingly um, active area when you start electrifying everything. And really, if you think about it, Bill and Corey, it, it is about electrifying things. You know, it's about looking at homes and utility and what your utilities look like and what how your cooking apparatus look. I mean, it's everything. Eventually, has to be moving away from from a fossil fuel base to a to electricity that's powered by renewable energy. But I think we all know that that I mean, even our internet system and is is compromised at times, and we do have to make sure that there's resilience in that system again. You know, I know that I've said resilience a few times related to Texas and others, but that really is the the key to this: is that there's a redundancy in the system. So I do think. Climate change is really seen by President Biden and the administration as a whole as the biggest national security threat that we face. And so I do think we're going to bring all of the weight of our national security apparatus to how we look at developing and building back better in a way that addresses these issues. They're going to they're going to be here eventually. Whether we can drive it at the pace and breath (laughs) that will save us is the question. So do you work with the military then also in yeah. climate change and security issues? The DOD, it's really funny. The Department of Defense, they get this. I mean, there is no secret about it. You know, they lose more more folks in, in, in wars at these days uh, refueling vehicles than they do on a battlefield. You know, they, they, they know that the more we can get to a different system of, of energy, the better off we are. And they have a significant budget that's, that, that we <laughs> are working with them to make sure that they're helping us to innovate and learn from, from the innovation that they've brought to the table. And it also gives us a, a, a really helpful focus on on the bases that they have across the United States and beyond and what they need to do to protect those bases. Many of them, obviously, are, are on our coastlines, our Navy bases and, and, and uh, Coast so Guard Cape bases. So Cape Canaveral, I remind everybody. You know, the ocean is coming up into Cape Canaveral. But So let's say electricity is the key to our future. Yep. Protecting the Internet's the key to our future. What electrical generation, electricity generating technologies do you imagine? Corey and I go a little wild. We go a little wild. Go for it. Geothermal and fusion. And I'd like to see us try, maybe try at this mythic thorium reactor idea. What are you all involved in? Well, short of the thorium reactor, I'm not sure about that. Given our history of innovation, why would we take anything off the table? You know, well, here's the thing. It costs investment, you know, and I yeah, think this is the Apollo program as reckoned in modern dollars costs one and a half times as much as the interstate highway system. Yeah. So if you spend that kind of money, you can do, you know, wonderful things. Yeah, but here's the frustrating part is that 
Uh, during the Obama administration, uh, when I was working at EPA, my colleagues at the DOE actually realized that the way to get out of the last economic doldrum we were facing what was to actually invest in technologies. It was the United States that led in battery technology that we are now losing at because it's being manufactured in other countries. But the challenge is that we, you need to stick with things. You need to not rest. I think that innovation is going to get us that, that last 10% that we can't envision today. But the deployment today needs to be done today. <laughs> so I think we usually need to innovate. But honestly, there's so much already at our fingertips. I need consumers demanding it. I need everybody demanding it. This is exactly what I want to talk about is how you balance these things. Yeah. You know, you're, you're focused very much on the, on the near term, the things that yeah. are deployable, which makes total sense. At the same time, I think, you know, Bill and I are both fascinated by you know, the potential for things like, you know, advanced geothermal yes. and fusion energy yes. and carbon capture yes. and carbon sequestration, uh -huh. things where even a relatively modest investment now could have huge dividends Absolutely. of the future. Is that mm -hmm. also kind of baked into the same plan? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, you'll see over the past two or three weeks, we have issued, you know, actually funds for people to solicit and, and look to, to make applications for innovation and low carbon transportation and climate innovation technologies from both DOT and DOE. We're going to, uh, there's no shortage of creativity, nor do we plan to actually pull back in terms of our investment in innovation. But you're not wrong that we have to bet on a few heavily. You know, we have to really look at it. Geothermal is no question. A, an, a mine that we have to really <laughs> grab onto. People don't realize the, the opportunity to, to transfer our entire heat system and how we're heating buildings, even big buildings, using our understanding of geothermal. They, they think it's a pie in the sky. When I'm telling you, you could, you could actually do every house from this point forward using the information available that science has told us. And, and that plus, we have it's been able drilling to technology. What? Who's better at drilling than the United States, man? That's all we do. Yeah, is I think drill. we're pretty good at that. Yeah. So, what do you see? How would you develop geothermal energy in this one example? We looked it up. It's we spend two point seven million at the renewable energy lab. That's like that's nothing. Hey, aren't you the engineer? I'm the social anthropologist. I mean, I'm going to throw it back at you. How would you do it? Well, I would ten timesify that budget. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if I were king of the forest, I would uh, have oil <laughs> drilling companies get, uh, let's say, grants for developing new ways to drill, let's say, yeah. no kidding, yep. in my neighborhood or in, in the middle of cities where they, you would drill in such a way that you wouldn't disrupt the whole thing and drill through people's power lines and sewer lines and stuff and not shake people's foundations so that it was impractical. And then- we got to come up with some heat exchangers and the yeah. right working fluid, uh, ammonia, whatever, so that you could you could do it. But don't we actually do that in a little form right now? I mean, we do that now, and so I think the trick is is to not be dismissive of these opportunities, to not be dismissive, but to invest. But I also think that you got to make some decisions along the road. You know, what are you going to invest in? And, and the, the really fun thing about 
about government, um, and people might think fun and government don't go together, but I've always found it to be really fun, is that we're only supposed to push so far and invest so far. We have to engage the private sector. We have to just do enough to send the signal about what Build Back Better means, what are we looking for, what standards are we setting, and get it to that tipping point where the business community goes, oh, I can make money on this, boom, 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 and runs. That's the trick. And I think you're raising the same issue that I am, is that when you have a proof of concept and you can do it at one level, it often takes some really big leap to get it much broader. And there has to be federal funding to help it get to that tipping stage where all of a sudden the private sector can run with it. But I don't think we ought to even contemplate doing it all because that's not what we need to do. We need to just get it there. Science Rules will be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You're listening to Science Rules. Here's the big question that I am asked seven times a week. How do we, you, us, them, reach the other side? This is to say, how do we get people who are politically opposed? And I do not know the answer. How do you get people on the other side to buy into this? I think those sides are much less defined now than they've ever been. Last year, we had the biggest year in the development of wind and solar in the United States of America ever. And the majority of that benefit, the majority of that wind and solar, were actually developed in states that had two Republican senators. The thing you have to do is go back to what I was talking about, about human beings (laughs) and what motivates them. We do have to talk about not making somebody do a, you know, pinky swear that they believe in climate change (laughs) and everything's going to, you know, be about that. But instead, just show them that clean energy is cheaper. Clean energy is going to clean up the air and my kids won't have asthma anymore. You know, if you do regenerative agriculture, you can deliver really healthy food to populations that need it, and you can make it cheaper and cleaner, and you can save our water. Give me things that relate to normal human beings' lives, and just talk about that that way. If you listen to to President Biden, he says, when someone says to me, climate change, I think jobs. I think that's perfect. You know, how you get there is not the argument. There well, so, you go. So you you had this very powerful, it sounds formative experience in your years at the EPA. What has changed in this country and sort of, I guess, what has also changed in your attitudes since then? How are we doing things differently now? You know, I think the change has been, uh, you know, and it's it's unfortunate, but it, it I think people had a wait to be able to see it with their own eyes. And people are seeing it with their own eyes now. 
They know climate's change. You can't deny it. The way we saw it in Texas, the way you see it in Florida with the hurricanes, the way you see these extraordinary uh, snowfalls and cold. It's that, and they see that the solutions are actually not something they should fight. Because if clean energy (laughs) is winning everywhere because it's cheaper, what's your argument? Hey, Corey, Corey. Uh, Wait, Bill, I hear something. It is a, a thunderous sound. It's 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 not hydrothermal energy. It's not geothermal energy. It's lightning. It's time for it's the lightning, lightning round. Corey. It's static electricity making its way from the cloud to the ground, the ground to the cloud. Oh, it heavens. Is. What is happening right now? That can right only now? mean. That just can so, only just mean. so you know what's about to happen. Uh, at our lightning round, we will ask lightning fast questions, and you will, to the best of your ability, give lightning fast answers. Okay. Uh, and I hope you have fun with it. If you had to switch jobs with anyone else in the White House, who would it be? Nobody. And I, <laughs> nobody. I'm, I'm in the best place at the best time. Whoa, there it is. What is the most misunderstood thing about climate change policies? That we're trying to save the planet instead of the people. If you are 100% successful, what does the U.S. look like after you have stepped down in eight years, four years? It looks uh, like a place that is safer and healthier, that values its resources in one another. What is the most mundane thing that you're working on right now that you feel is actually a big old deal? Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) You can say the whole thing, you know. You know, I think it's actually housing. Hardly anybody thinks about buildings. Every time I look at a building, I think about the opportunities inside to not have energy waste. Uh, And that's really boring. Try to talk to somebody about about heat pumps. Go go for it. Ground source heat pumps. Oh, I love a heat pump. That's my point. Coefficient of performance, people. You bring the heat from outside. It's a cold day. No, there's still heat out there. And I say to the young people, I say to them, if you want to if you want to invest in your house, get new windows. Well, have like, a long conversation about that and see how many people <laughs> hang around with you. That's all I'm going to say. I, I put Corey to sleep in a couple sentences. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sorry. What, uh, wait, oh, oh, we're still doing the podcast? <laughs> Gina, this is great. And I just I got to say, I just wish you the very, very best in the coming years. Because I say all the time, when you build wind turbines, you got to build it here. You can't outsource the welding. It's got to be in the U.S. You build a road, it's got to be in the U.S. You build a building, it's here or in Canada, wherever, whoever's listening. It's a local job. Right. You're not, you're not going to, you're not going to import wind and you're not going to import the sun. Nobody can send those jobs overseas. So it's a, it's a big deal. And thanks. Thank you. Uh, it, It was a, what a blast. Thank you. Thank you, Gina, for joining us today to talk about fighting climate change with policy. Our guest today has been none other than Gina McCarthy. She is the National Climate Advisor and the head of the White House Office of Domestic Climate Policy. Remember, when it comes to saving the world from global warming, science Science rules. rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to check out my socials for more information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question to askbillnye.com. We'd like to hear you on this show. The Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. 
Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, science rules. Let's change the world, people. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.